1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this episode, I'm talking to Nicola Rollock about the book she's co authored with David Gilburn, Carol Vincent, and Stephen J. Ball called The Colour of Class The Educational Strategies of the Black Middle Class, that was published by Rowledge in 2015. Okay, so welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about the colour of class. The Educational Strategies of the Black Middle Class, which is written by Nicola Rollock, David Gilburn, Carol Vincent, and Stephen J. Ball, and it's published by Routledge. And on this episode, I've got Dr. Rollock, who is at Birmingham's School of Education and Social Justice, to talk about the book with me. So welcome to the podcast.
0: Hello, hi.
1: It's good to have you on. Um, this is a fascinating and brilliant book that Um, I think raises a whole host of issues for education and for society in the UK, but also has a relationship to um, other areas, particularly the US as well. And so I'm fascinated by the kind of the story of the book, about where the book came from and how it relates to your um, academic career so far.
0: Okay, well, let me take that question in two parts. So my current role, I'm Deputy Director of Research um, of the Centre of Research and Race at the at the University of Birmingham. And what I'm really interested in is how minoritised, racially minoritised groups make sense of and manage and survive racism. So within the education system, but also beyond that, so looking at the workplace as well. So that's an increasing interest of mine. If you look back at my, my career, I've always been interested in the questions that are seldom asked about race. So if you go back to my PhD, you're looking at the late 1990s, early 2000s. My PhD was looking at black academic success. And this was at a time in policy and education circles when the focus was very much on underachievement, disadvantage and failure. And I wanted to explore whether we could perhaps take a new lens to those debates by looking at students, black students, who did well. So this research on the black middle classes stems from a desire to look at under-examined areas. We don't really talk about a black middle class in the UK. We, because I sit within that same class location as a black uh, member of staff, we are relatively invisible. Um, so there's been research that's been done on the white middle classes, but less so on this demographic. And I would say, connecting it to the second part of your question, that the research team in Professors Carol Vincent, Stephen Ball and David Gilbourne speaks to that. So Carol's and Stephen, Stephen's work has looked a lot at parenting practices, at child care Class positions around the white middle classes, how they get their children through school successfully, and David Gilborn and myself, more work on on race and education. So, what the the research that led to the book is really an amalgamation of our interests.
1: And it's really interesting because that amalgamation of interests raises, I think, a really crucial sociological point about uh, the intersection of these two big ideas about uh, race and and class. And and that's one of the things uh, that we might come on uh, to talk about. But I think before that, it might be good um, if you could sketch out how the book starts, which is with um, Rachel and the story of an experience of um, essentially uh, a racist teacher Mm -hmm. and an institutional response to that, which broadens out to to reveal some of the, the kind of key themes that are running through the book. Yeah,
0: and, I mean, and it's great that you pick up precisely on that point. So we wanted to start the book with an example that would speak to readers, both who have a familiarity with some of the issues around race and social class and racism, but also perhaps who are less familiar with those issues. And Rachel's story, um, the account that we put at the beginning, really does um, exemplify that. So Rachel with respect to our sample of black professional parents, it's typical. She's a senior solicitor. She's on a good salary. She's married. Her husband is also black, on a good salary, professional. And they have three children who are independent schools. And perhaps we can speak later to some of the challenges around choosing a suitable school for your black middle class child. But in this example, what we read is... um, Rachel's experience at the school this is a school in London, a well-known independent school, and this is a few years back when there was coverage in the media of the release of a memo where a number of people across the professions had been identified as being members of the BMP. Now it turns out that, um, that I think Rachel's son her t- his teacher was p- part of that list. So as a concerned mother of a black child, Rachel went to the school to find out what was happening and what the, what action the school was taking as a result. And as you see it read in her quote, she's dismissed. She's shooed away and told that actually this is an internal affair. And I quote, Um, this is a private matter, this is a staff matter, we'll deal with it. Missing the very fundamental point that actually it might be a staff matter, but it seeps over to the classroom. And it particularly matters if your child is black. It should matter anyway, if we're thinking about having schools and raising children who are racially aware, but it has a particular salience and Um, significance for Rachel as a black mother. So she's dismissed. And what is quite powerful and moving about the quote, and I remember the interview quite clearly, this is the interview I did, is Rachel's frustration. You know, she was really quite emphatic when she spoke to me about how frustrated she felt at being silenced, at being pushed away. And what this quote speaks to, what the story speaks to, is the way in which she has... Class resources, she and her husband have these class resources, if we think about it, or capitals, if we think about it in terms of but So they have those resources to send their children to a fee-paying school, but yet considerations of race remain. So um, it's not just that you're middle class and black and you suddenly made it and life is good. Race retains a presence. So that's why we opened with
1: that particular quote. And that runs fascinatingly through the the entire text, actually, and um, I think it's one of the the major contributions the book makes, uh, particularly with the kind of uh, re-emergence of the study of class um, as as a major category in in, in British sociology. I, I wonder if you could expand on that idea about race remaining by talking me through the kind of, Uh, theoretical starting points for the book, which include, as you mentioned, the idea of capital, so Bourdieu, critical race theory, and then this idea about intersectionality.
0: Yeah, so again, in terms of the the theories, they very much are led by our interests as a research team. Um, But what we were able to do is marry those theoretical interests, both to shape the design of the project, the questions, our analysis and interpretation. So, excuse me. So, what we were interested in exploring, as a primary starting point, is whether having do the black middle classes have resources that they're able, class-based resources they're able to use. So, networks, particular forms of knowledge, as we see in the research from the white middle classes, and are they able to deploy those class resources to the advantage? Of their children's education. So that's how we were in, that's the way in which we entered Bourdieu, if you like, in a very basic way. But I think what I want to open that up slightly, because one of the things we were also interested in, or became interested in as the project progressed, was actually not just whether they had their resources, because we found several examples, as the book demonstrates, where they did. But what we found is that the resources weren't necessarily recognised by, say, the school, uh, by teachers, by head teachers, and others, as having value, as being, in Bourdieu's term, having legitimacy. But we can touch on that in a moment. And this is where we can intersect the notion of critical race theory. And one of the arguments that we make is that actually racism and race continues to have a presence in their, experience, in their experiences. I've already given you the example of Rachel, which is how we open the book. But what we found time and time again, and again, I can speak to further examples of this later on, is that uh, black middle-class families would try to push their children in various ways through the education system, but were often thwarted by the low expectations of their, children's, um, of their children's teachers. So what we, we make the argument that race retains a presence. And let's put this also in a, diff- in a different context or a wider context, because we know that education doesn't exist in a vacuum. So if we think about some of the societal pressures and how they come to bear on the school, parents talked about being concerned about the way in which their boys were treated, the low expectations afforded to their boys and the belief held by some of the teachers that they automatically wouldn't do well. Similar concerns were expressed in relation to the girls, but some of the wider societal concerns are about how the black females positioned within a wider societal context where um, to be white and female is seen as more desirable. But I can unpick some of that a bit more later on, should you wish.
1: I suppose the, the other thing that um, is present in the introduction and carries over actually into the first chapter um, is this category of um, the black middle class. Uh, and, and so I wonder if you could kind of say a bit about who you're talking about there and then to bring in some of the themes from the first chapter, how your uh, participants, your interviewees um, understood and identified or actually didn't identify um, with the idea of the black middle class and the kind of the experience of being uh, in that category?
0: Well, yeah. So our interest is obviously the books about the black middle classes. So speaking to the black middle classes, we selected those. We called them professionals. Um, So we, in terms of our adverts, in terms of recruiting participants, we said that we're interested in speaking to black professionals. We determined who fell within that class location by using the Office for National Statistics standard economic classification manuals. So these were people who sat in the highest categories, what's one and two of that scale. So these are people in professional and managerial occupations, um, often with qualifications and high, with a high level qualifications, excuse me, and um, high salaries. So that, but where you're right in kind of pushing on that question is that you've got the objective class position And then you've got how they feel about being in that class location. And actually, we're really struck by the differences or some of the discomfort expressed when we asked, well, how do you feel about being middle class? And I should say first and foremost that our data mirrors some of the wider work by, say, uh, Savage and by Andrew Sayer, where they find that actually, Uh, People are uncomfortable or ambiguous about their class, their class location and being called middle class. So but the reasons that um, our participants are uncomfortable or ambiguous, I would argue vary from some of the research that I've just mentioned. So some of the ambiguity and discomfort expressed by our participants was because they felt that being middle class, was tied up with whiteness. So, in other words, when in wider societal discourse we talk about the middle classes, we're usually talking about the white middle classes. Our parents also said that when we're talking about the white middle classes, that for them reflected particular ways of being with which they didn't relate. So, notions of privilege and individuality were core to them. And they associated the, that kind of way of being with the white middle classes, which is very different from what we might think of very crudely as a more kind of collective identity amongst um, some of our black participants. I, w- I would be mindful to say here that this wasn't the evidence across the board. The other thing that, that came to the fore in terms of class, this reluctance to identify as middle class, is that for some, their parents were working class, their friends were working class, and to therefore call yourself middle class when you knew so many working class people, for some, was to reject your roots, to reject the very foundations of family and friends relations that had helped make you who you were. And it was important to them not to reject this. Now, as I said, most of our samples sat in that group, but by no means all. I mean, at the other ends of, the, of that continuum, if you like, were those who were quite comfortable in describing themselves as middle class. And they viewed it in very factual terms, very factual, objective terms. So they'd say, well, look, I have a library in my living room. I ha- we have two cars. Um, we both have very high pay, paying jobs, of course, for middle class. So very practical and pragmatic engagement with it. But as I say, others were more hesitant. Some talked about being middle class in a relational way. So in other words, they say, well, I must be middle class because I'm not like those other black people. And so and that, there's one um, participant who comes to mind in particular who said, and I can't remember the quote completely off head, but it was one of those ones where you heard and thought, I'm so glad I've got this on tape, but it makes me feel slightly uncomfortable. But she said, um, you know, of course we're middle class because we don't go to Butlins and we don't watch EastEnders on TV and stuff like that. So you, you see this kind of this disregard for particular cultural pastimes and tastes that in her mind positions her as different from the rest. So absolutely fascinating. I'd love to do more research looking at who exactly are the middle class, what are their pastimes, what do they do, where do they go, where do they eat, what do they do on holiday?
1: Yeah, and and precisely that kind of uh, Bourgeoisian idea about and how do they draw boundaries. Um,
0: Exactly. The, the, The boundary work is absolutely fascinating for me. Um, Because, again, this is not something while I've had these conversations as a black woman with my peers, with my black friends and black colleagues, these kinds of conversations not really had in a wider academic arena and certainly not a wider societal arena. So for me, it was really fascinating to be able to use the data and for the data to come out and be able to kind of publish more widely and offer a different lens and way of thinking about class position, but through the lens of this intersection of race and class. And I suppose what I would say in terms of uh, some of the work on the white middle class is that it's been more silent about the race position of the white participants. And I think that's actually really fascinating to understand as well.
1: Oh, yeah, very uh, very much so. I, actually, I... You got me thinking there that it might be really interesting um to think about how the book sort of ends actually about mm. uh the story of uh the kind of generational changes um in education over time. Um and, and I love this this phrase, you know, the kind of the differences in the experience of what you call the sort of Obama generation. Mm. Um, you know, the, the the, kids that your um participants are, you know, finding school places for or are being parents of, you know, are supporting through the education system um, and their experiences. Um, and then, you know, by implication, the kind of experiences of their uh, parents and families in turn. So I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that uh, intergenerational story of changes in education as a route into um, the more specific uh, educational narratives that you've got.
0: Yeah. So let me just first outline for you, just just for listeners, just to make clear. So there's our participants, who we I will sometimes refer to as respondents or um, parents. But also then there's their children, who you've rightly picked up, we've called the Obama generation. But then on the other side of that are our participants' parents. So what we've done is we spoke to our participants. We asked them about their educational experiences. Then we asked them about how their parents engaged with them and their education. And then we asked our participants um, about their children's views of racism and education. So, a kind of three tiered, three generations. So, we didn't speak to the children, the Obama generation directly. So, it's important to just name that. Yes. And to, to take you through, let's call them the grandparents. So, the grandparents, in terms, you know, these are who would be my parents. So, these are parents who have come to the UK from the Caribbean, mainly in the 60s. And they've taken up, by and large, working class um, positions. And I think it's also important to bear in mind, to give context to what I'm about to go on to say, that the educational landscape was very different from the one in which um, our participants are operating in. Today, it's very much more competitive. We have a marketplace in terms of, the choosing of schools and competition. But that kind of um, way of being didn't exist for the grandparents in this study. So what our participants would say is that while some of their parents were involved and concerned about education, they were much more accepting or had the belief that the British education system in the motherland would treat their children well. That all you needed to do, in effect, was to go to school, put your head down and work hard. But what we witnessed in listening to our participants was actually that was far from the truth. By large, that was far from the truth. And really, we have some horrendous and painful accounts of quite overt racism experienced by our respondents during the 70s and 80s when they were at school. And so these are examples of being called wog, um, being called names, being asked about, for the the female, um, female participants, being asked about the shape of their body, being asked to touch their hair. Some really crude and overt examples. And I remember there was one... Um, parent I spoke to and I asked her to talk me through some of what she went through at school and she said to me, she was just completely deadpan with me and she said I'd rather not go into that and you know, even though her words were almost emotionless they spoke to a painful memory and generally as a researcher as a good researcher I would generally try to find a way to come back to the topic and explore it, (coughs) excuse me, through a different angle. But she was so steadfast and the pain in her eyes so explicit. I actually left that alone. But, you know, I I remember one of our participants talking about going to school. Um, She, she uh, was raised in Yorkshire and she said, um, it was a standard affair to be called out in the street. Um, (laughs) excuse me, Um, she would be called up and say, A up, you black bastard. And that was just standard affair. And so it was left to our participants as children to find strategies or ways of coping with this. And I'm afraid to say that some of them were quite emotionally traumatised and upset, even recalling these incidents many years later. But of their parents, some of their parents who did hear about these incidents would say actually what you need to do is work x times two times 10 times harder than your white counterparts in order to, to succeed so where you, what you have is a really quite painful account this is not across the board but was quite a prevalent was quite prevalent in the data in terms of our participants experiences and then their parents involvement Our participants themselves, in terms of their engagement with their children, they varied. And I can perhaps speak to this afterwards, but they varied and we were able to tease out their responses along a continuum. And and as I say, I can speak to that afterwards. Um, But, you know, they ranged from those who are very, very hands on and involved and have a plan for their children and their children's educational trajectory to those who are more concerned about their child's happiness and well-being.
1: I think it, it, it might be worth um, highlighting there as well the um, the different institutional positions. So um, the experience of racism in education um, and parents or grandparents, as, as we might call them, relationships um, to that. Is different because there is a essentially, as, as you see in some of the stories, you know, a really overt institutional um, position that racist behaviour by the teachers is, you know, mm-hmm. part of a racist society. Um, whereas the kinds of institutional um, racist behaviour you're talking about for the Obama generation, for the the children in the book, is much more subtle and is bound up with particular forms of expectations and. Um, is related much more directly to the kinds of strategies you're talking about.
0: That, that's right. That's completely right. So if we bring this up to speed for the Obama generation, so these are kind of people who w- won't necessarily remember the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, but, you know, were born under the gaze of what was what co- is called a post-race society. And, you know, I, I, I think that's a problematic statement in itself. But um, these... The, the way that, you know, we have legislation now, quite a strong body of equalities legislation. We know that overt expressions of racism are not acceptable as a society. However, what's evident in the accounts about the Obama generation, so this is parents talking about what they encounter in relation to their children, is that though racism is still present, albeit in more subtle forms. And this is going back to your original question around theory. So intersectionality and critical race theory allows us to attend to the fact that racism is fluid. It will look different according to different moments in history. And those moments in history are shaped by politics and by legislation. So and by different migrational movements, so it allows us intersectionality allows us to take heed of those kinds of complexities and nuances. And so, what we're seeing for the Obama generation are more subtle forms. As I said, so these these subtle forms manifest in terms of low expectations. In terms of, um, well, there's one example that um, a parent gave me where. Her son, and for me, I'm, I'm quite struck by the fact that this is a black boy, given some of the stereotypes that exist around black boys and they're not doing well at school. But she's, this, her son's in primary school, um, best friends with a Chinese boy. They both excel in maths. And they're in the top set for mathematics. They have a change of teacher, primary school teacher. A new teacher comes in and decides to make some changes. And he moves people around. And her son comes home to her one day in tears and says, I've been moved. I've been moved. I'm no longer in the top set in maths. So this particular parent goes into school and says, well, you know, what's going on? And the teacher says, well, I've moved people. It's just a random reassignment of places in terms of groups. But it turns out... That even though the Chinese boy and her son were doing equally well in math, her son had been moved down a set, whereas the Chinese boy remained in the same top set. and for our, the parents, this was symptomatic of the different expectations that, that teachers often hold. In relation to black boys and obviously we can contextualize that in terms of the wider data on black academic achievement and what we know in terms of the dropout rate for black boys as they progress through the, ed- the compulsory education system.
1: I wonder if you could pick up there on what you would mentioned earlier about the kind of uh, the strategies that parents uh, have and, and that kind of um, different set of groups around watchfulness determination hope fighting that, that you talk about in the fifth chapter because mm-hmm. that might might illustrate the um, the kind of the par- parental responses to this mm-hmm. so,
0: so what we're able to do is map the ways in which parents engaged with talked about and strategized in terms of their and get their engagement with the school so we we worked to tease out the data and map it, these individual parental strategies along a continuum. And we're able to identify four broad clusters. So determined to get the best, watchful and circumspect, those who um, had a, a fighting chance and those who were hoping for the best. And I'll just talk you through what we mean by each of those and give you a very brief example So our determined to get the best parents were those who, as I said earlier, had a long term strategy for their child's education. They didn't leave this to chance. They had a game plan and they had this plan quite early on. And what accompanied this game plan was an intense focus on academic achievement and monitoring and surveillance, not just of the school, but also the child. So there's also a lot of involvement on the child's part, not just in terms of what they did in their school day, but also in terms of extracurricular activities and tutoring and so on. And and one parent in particular comes to mind, and and I, I love this quote because it's so evocative. And I remember the interview with this particular parent because he was just unabashed in his conviction and determination that his child, his particular child do well. And so I, I'll just share with you the quote. So um, he says, this is uh, uh, Michael, so obviously these are pseudonyms, and he, he's moved his child to a new state school, and in it he shared with me this. Before he started at the school, I wrote to the headmaster and said, my child is coming to your school. He's always gone to private school. But I love your school, but be warned, I have very high expectations of my child. So my message is do not mess up. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, um, as I say, if this, this, this parent is very clear, not just to his child, but to the school. He wants there to be no misunderstanding and indeed no low expectations. He wants the school to know. That he is watching them. He's concerned about his child's education. So that's how de- an example for our determined to get the best um, a parent within that category. So just to say, share something about those who we categorise as more watchful and circum- circumspect in their approach. So these were similar in some senses, to the first group, those who are determined, but they lack the same intense focus of the determined cluster. So they might take initiative, for example, with the school in terms of setting up dialogue and conversation about their child's achievement. And they remain within the boundaries that the school sets or judges to be appropriate parental involvement. And so this is an example from Anne who um, works at a local authority level. She's an advisor. And she says, well, I've probably been down to the school twice now to check on him, to check on her son. The teachers have been very, very supportive, but also very surprised that I've wanted to see them before parents' evening or before they've, they've asked me to. So involved, interested, concerned, but not as intense as our first determined cluster.
1: Yeah, not, not writing letters and not staking out the... Uh, yeah, um,
0: there's, there's not the same kind of heavy compulsion, if you like, but still kind of very quiet observation. So there's a kind of difference in intensity there. So just moving on to the third of our categories, and it's important, I should say, that, and I perhaps will make this point again at the end, that actually, even though we've teased out these categories, they're not fixed. Parents move between the categories depending on maybe the age of the child or indeed what's happened to the child in terms of their school experience. But I can give you an example of that shortly. Um, So this is our fighting chance parents. So parents in this category, they're more likely to step outside of the boundaries of what schools define as appropriate involvement. So they might challenge the school directly, for example, in relation to their own child, but sometimes in the, they will act as advocates for other parents, and often this is to do with issues of inequality and racism specifically and parents within this category would often name race and racism explicitly, and actually we could go on and, and to talk about strategies about how one handles race and racism at all within wider society. But, you know, this is an example from Juliet, and Juliet is a civil servant who works for government. And she describes how she wrote some very stroppy letters to the school. And she, she says this, she, she recounts to me that she said this in one of the letters. I'm getting the impression that there are a particular set of girls, who all seem to be girls of colour, who are not treated the same ways as others. And I asked the headmistress to look into it. And that teacher, who's treating these girls differently, left shortly after. So these are parents, as I said, who will name race, their advocates, perhaps other parents of color will go to our participants who fall in the fight and chance category and ask them to intervene or advocate on their behalf. And then our final category is our hoping for the best category. Now, this really compares, if we were to compare this to the determined for the best, they really do stand out as markedly different. So parents who are hoping for the best, academic achievement is important, but there's much more space for the child's own voice and opinion. So parents are proactive in terms of education and their child's achievement, Excuse me. But they're more concerned about the child's health and well-being and perhaps slightly less focused on schooling and schooling outcomes. It's about how the child feels, their experiences, their health. So, for example, Anita, who's a lecturer, says, well, I want him, speaking of her son, to get his grades. I want him to pass, but I don't think it's all got to be A's just get some decent grades and then move to the next step. And so I've talked you through those categories. You can imagine that a parent who's in a determined to get the best category would just see that as completely unacceptable. But I do want to return to my um, earlier point around the fact that even though we've mapped these four categories, they're not fixed. There's some fluidity and there's movement in them. And um, one of our parents, a mother, Felicia, of a boy, um, comes to mind and in, in kind of gives an example to the fluidity of these categories. So Felicia, um, originally, we would have categorised as determined to get the best. Her son's in an independent school. She was really concerned about, yes, he needed to do well. Education is a means of progression. It's a tool to help mediate against race and racism. It's important. However, her son experienced some quite severe racist bullying. And she became concerned about not just the inadequate response of the school to that bullying, but also the well-being and the mental health of her son. So she ended up talking about her son's education more in the terms of as long as he's happy. Let him do whichever subject he's able to do as long as he's happy and healthy. So in that sense, she became one of our hoping for the best parents. So I just really want to emphasize the point around the fact that these categories or this, these these clusters that we've identified are not fixed in any way, but they do provide a way in to understanding parental engagement and involvement with schools.
1: And, and there is, as you said earlier, the idea that that race remains, you know, the, these narratives are a, a very, you know, middle-class stories about relationships with schools and the, you know, the sense of achievement or concern for a child's well being. They're obviously different from, um, the grandparent um narratives around, you know, working class expectations that schools would just provide, or or, you know, that this education system was not competitive and there wasn't choice. Um, but there's still the both the experience of the kind of institutional barriers and then these broader questions about, you know, preparing um for life in in a racist society around things like accent, language, um, how it differs by gender, that sort of thing. I wonder if you could uh, maybe bring up some of these things in the idea about choosing schools um, and the kind of the hunt for a, a, a good mix in school.
0: So in some ways, in answering that question, it pulls together some of the points that I've already raised. And indeed, I think your question at the beginning around Rachel so here you have someone who has resources, who's concerned about their children's, ed- their child's education and is elected as a result to send them to a fee paying school. But you have the tension around the race aspect, and um, we've heard already about the experience, her experiences in terms of how the school engaged and treated her with respect to the son's teacher who was on the BMP list. And so what we found quite crudely, if I, I can put it in this quite crude terms, is that for some parents, the choice was between choosing a very good school with high academic standards which by and large would mean an independent, so a fee-paying school, which would also be mainly white, up against just an average, maybe a state school, which obviously isn't fee-paying, but which might be more mixed, and where the issues and tensions around racism would be less prevalent. So the choice is a stark one, and I'm, I'm going to be slightly crude here, a mainly white, possibly fee-paying, highly academic school or a mixed-state school where you don't need to worry so much about your child's psychological and emotional well-being because race and racism is more... Pre- uh, um, the, the, the policies and actions of, for dealing with race and racism are more present. So some parents struggled in terms of making that decision. For some, they would say, well, actually, I'm going to say that the academic aspect is key. And I will deal with ensuring that my child has a secure and what we call a healthy um, sense of identity. And for others, they would perhaps choose a better school that was a state school, so a non-fee-paying school. But let me give you an example of this, because I think the examples and the data speak to this more clearly. So a really quite powerful example is Cynthia, who's the mother of three boys. And Cynthia herself is a teacher. And she remembered, or she recalls to me, going into the school um, and listening to a conversation they'd had someone in to talk about achievement and boys. And she said she listened to her colleagues say, well, actually, black boys aren't going to do well. They don't do well. And she had a sudden fear. She thought, well, if you start from the position that black boys aren't going to do well, what hope is there for my son? And she describes incidences of going into the school for parent seasoning, for example, and looking at her child's work and seeing that work that was wrong had been marked right, and work that was right had been marked wrong. Or him getting, I think it was nine out of 20 for a test. And she drew this to her son's teacher's attention and said, well, why didn't you tell me about this? And the teacher said, well, actually, you know, your son's really well behaved. So, you know, we don't have really major concerns. And Cynthia was alarmed by this, saying, well, I'm not so much concerned about his behaviour, you know, and the fact that he's polite. I'm concerned about his academic performance, but she wasn't being alerted to um, how her son was doing academically. What does she do? She ended up taking her child out of the school and homeschooling him. On the basis that she could do a better job than the school and on the basis that she could foster in her child, in her black son, a strong sense of confidence in his black identity, in his black male identity that extended beyond the, the tokenistic teaching of slavery within the school. Mm-hmm. So this is both about his academic performance, but also about challenging some of the negative stereotypes that prevail within the education system about black students and about black boys in particular, and which prevail across wider society.
1: That's a really interesting point. I think to draw things to a close, I mean, there's so much more we could have talked about in the book. It's really rich. There's discussions of special educational needs is a kind of a a key um, topic for one chapter. There there are much broader um, questions the book Uh, raises around identity and education, stuff like this. But I wonder, as a way to kind of conclude things, Mm. uh, maybe you could comment on on how the book ends, particularly um, the book's comments at the very end about um, essentially kind of government policy uh, fixating on um, colourblind focus on poverty and social mobility not being enough and the need for much more kind of targeted interventions.
0: Do you know... Dave, that's such a huge question, and it's a fascinating question, and it's one that I'm deeply concerned and passionate about. And to try and speak to that with you know succinctly is that actually as a society we tend to think about policy, especially policies around social mobility and achievement, in very isolated terms. So we think about Uh, the groups that don't do well in in identity silos. So, for example, debates on social mobility seldom look or also consider race. There's an assumption, an implicit assumption, that once you have qualifications and experience, that you will make it um, in terms of your social mobility. The book, I argue, puts lay to those claims. Because race and racism matters, even if you are middle class. So in other words, even if you have those resources. In terms of, I mean, there's so many ways I can enter that, that, that as a question. But in terms of the education sector, if you'd asked me this question maybe 10 years ago, my first point of court would, would have been teacher education, teacher training. And I would have said to you that I would... Consider it mandatory that all teacher training have an explicit element that looks at not just issues of equality, but specifically at race and racism in its more subtle forms. So issues around racial microaggressions, more covert um, examples of racism and how they manifest quite often in experiences of for racially minoritised groups. Um, I would have said that to you 10 years ago, that it's important to have it in terms of teacher training and also continuing professional development. We now have a system today where um, there's wide differentiation in terms of the routes into teaching, but I'd still want to make a call for that type of training. But I wouldn't want to stop there. I also think it's absolutely fundamental at the level of higher education I am delighted to have just been made patron to the Equality Challenge Unit's race equality charter mark. And I would argue that higher education rests on what could be considered liberal laurels when it comes to race equality, because of the assumption that we just get it and we don't. So we see inequalities of race across the compulsory system through to higher education. And for me, that's really, really important because we're sending the message on one hand, or the government's sending the message on one hand, that, you know, get to university, get a good degree that will help you get a job. But it concerns me that even though we're seeing more racially minoritised students going to universities, not all of them are showing success. And it also takes longer for them to um, secure a job um, after six months after, having graduated. So my closing statement would be that actually as a society and as an education system, despite having some very rigorous equalities legislation, we continue to fail black and minority ethnic groups, but in particular we, we continue to fail black groups who are underrepresented and their experiences not acknowledged sufficiently across the system as a whole.
1: And are these the themes you're taking up in your uh, current and future academic work?
0: Yeah, so what I'm I'm really interested, as I I said at the beginning, I'm interested in the questions that don't get asked or the aspects to debates around race that often seem to be missing. Um, So I'm really interested in who's given a voice in these debates and who isn't. Um, So one of the things I'm really interested in and alarmed by is the fact that is the fact of the black-white degree attainment gap. So I'm concerned, and I, I don't know why there isn't kind of more alarm across the HE system, the higher education system as a whole, about the fact that even when black students enter higher education with the same grades as their white counterparts, they're less likely to leave with a good degree. So a good degree being a first or a 2-1. For me, that's deeply alarming and it speaks to an injustice within the system that we refuse as academics as practitioners to sufficiently engage with so I'm hoping to do some research in that area I also want to um write more widely about the ways in which we both speak about race and don't speak about race and what we name and don't name as a society and um as academics, when it comes to race debates, I think that's a complex area. I think that if, as a faculty of colour, there are particular things that I can say about race, but I might be regarded as being particularly frank or particularly challenging, because I'm saying things that actually, while they might be grounded in evidence and true, will make my white colleagues feel uncomfortable but actually they're conversations which we need to have if we're going to be honest about some of the shortcomings within the system and if we're going to see change and if we're going to see success or greater success for people who actually look like me.
1: Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Nicola Rollock about the book that she's co-authored with David Gilburn, Carol Vincent, and Stephen J. Ball called The Colour of Class, The Educational Strategies of the Black Middle Classes.